My name's Drew. I'm uh, the pastor here. It's great to have you here with us. It's fun to see all of you here. And it's February, and in February, I love to be able to highlight um, some some of our uh, friends here in the church, specifically in uh, Black History Month. And so I, I'm excited. This is some new ones that I've been discovering myself. Uh, and so I've been going back, farther back. Uh, to uh, There's a lot of Black history that we get to share that I think is more recent. Uh, and so this is, a, this is a fun one that I'm excited that I just learned about. And so as we start our time here, I just want to share with you someone. We're actually come back to to him. He's going to share with us later, not in person. He's not alive, but uh, we have a, a, some words from St. Moses, the Ethiopian later. But I just want to start off by sharing a little bit about him as we celebrate him and some of our great church history here. Moses, the Ethiopian, uh, was born around 330 uh, in, in, they think, Ethiopia, Africa. He's actually born uh, and was a slave in Egypt. And then when he was freed, he became, uh, he has different names, as you can tell. There's some called him Moses the Black, Moses the Robber, Moses the Strong. He was a very big, very strong man. And after he was freed, he actually became, uh, joined this kind of gang of men who roamed around Egypt, became kind of infamous uh, as robbers. They would rob people on, uh, on roads or they'd break into places and rob. And he got so good at it that he actually became kind of one of the leaders and known for his thievery. Um, and so uh, Moses was this big thief uh, there. And one time he was kind of on the run from the law. People were trying to catch him. And so he ran into a monastery to, to seek shelter. And when he was there, he discovered these, these men there, these monks that had a very different life than him. And like maybe you've heard the story often in the church, something was different about them that attracted him to them. And he actually says he feels he saw a great peace and contentment in them that he had been searching for and found it here, not thinking he'd find it in necessarily in a monastery uh, with monks, but it actually changed his life. He decided to uh, learn that that came from a devotion to Christ, that came from uh, this monastic life uh, and essentially a faith in Christ that he wasn't finding by uh, robbing and stealing. And so he turns into a monk, or turns into, becomes a monk, lives at this monastery. Uh, There's many stories of his life changing so dramatically. I'm seeing from him being a man that was violent before to a man of peace. He's known in church history as someone who really promoted uh, that idea of peace. Uh, Also really understanding. He was known for understanding that that he's a sinner as well as the person he meets. So there's stories of actually people coming to rob the, the monastery, and he felt, even though he could have probably easily uh, thrown them out. He felt like he didn't want to cause any violence towards them. And he also felt like he understood them. He said, oh, I'm a sinner as well. And so people, others, there's other stories of other groups of thieves coming to take shelter there and then staying forever as monks because he would sit with them and explain the life that he had and who Jesus was. It's a very cool, cool story. The, the legend is, it's a little unclear, but that he actually died because people came to steal from him and he wouldn't fight back and was actually killed in the process. And so today we get to celebrate St. Moses the Ethiopian. Uh, what, a, what just a cool story and a story of a changed person, a very similar story as we see even of Paul in scripture going from someone who murdered Christians to now being willing to give his life for them. And we see the same radical change uh, in, in a man who was seeking stuff to, to bring satisfaction and finds it in in the Lord. It's very, very cool, very encouraging. Love for you to take a little more time if you can to 
investigate St. Moses. It's also just the coolest name if you're going to be a, a saint, St. Moses. When I hear these stories, I, I'm very encouraged. And then part of me also, from the question that we had today, I think, man, I'm not even close to as cool. Not as close to as holy or as good as St. Moses. So I went on, some, used some AI this week, and I made my own uh, icon. This pretty, if you type in bearded saint icon with glasses, this is what you get. It's pretty accurate right out of the gates. Um, and I, 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 hear these, I love reading these stories of these saints in church history. And, and then those stories, you also hear like the not so good stuff, but still it's hard for me not to, to go, man, I am not very saintly. And then there's days where I maybe think oh, I'm pretty awesome as well. And there's moments where I feel like I'm not so awesome, that I'm a failure, that I'm unknown, that I'm pretty mediocre. I, I don't know if you've felt this. There's this kind of roller coaster, even in like the same moment, I can feel like, gosh, I, I do all these great things. I'm really good at this. And then at the same time, I'm not good. This means you might feel this tension if uh, like on the transition from work to home or transition to a thing that you're good at to a not good thing. I, I felt this like on a drive home. I think, gosh, I was killing it today at work. Uh, but now I go home and I don't know necessarily what to do as a dad or a husband. I just know this is not the area that I excel in. It's this feeling like I just can't do enough or I don't do enough or I'm just not so awesome. And the feeling at times where I just think, gosh, I'm glad I'm not them. I'm so good. It's just, it's this very human, very um, uh, real thing that all of us experience. We see it throughout scripture of of a swing between the like thinking highly of ourselves and not so highly of ourselves. And, it, and at times it's kind of tiring that, that, that back and forth. And so today's passage I think is going to help us uh, remind us of how we feel that I think we live in a kind of a system and an economy, not just like with money, just like how things work around us, the culture we're in, uh, has us kind of on this back and forth, up and down going after us to, to try to find that thing to satisfy us or, or just in a like, you're just kind of hopeless. You're not very good at this and just going, okay, I guess I just have to learn to be okay with not being good. And I think there's a different, I think there's a different way. I think the gospel is, one of, is the thing that speaks to this, that there actually is a different way to live. And today we're going to see um, of what that even looks like. And so we're in the book of Romans and um, we are rolling through it. We're almost done. Today we'll be done with chapter nine of Romans. We've been going through it for the last while here and we're in the home stretch here. And we're in a section um, that is specifically talking about uh, Paul who writes the book of Romans. He's talking about the Jewish people. He's going to talk about their history and what has been and kind of where they're at right now. And then he's going to look to the future of what could be the hope that is. We have lots of resources uh, you can check out on our website. There's a podcast. We also still have some of these scripture journals. So Feel free to grab one of those around the little table when you leave that has all sorts of great stuff that you can take. Um, love for you to grab those resources. And in Romans 9 through 11, the section we're in now, uh, Paul is, is walking us through how the gospel applies to the Jewish people. These are people who were given God's word and his commandments that were kind of got to usher in the people who really were trying to pursue God. And he says they, they missed it somehow though. And they haven't put faith in Christ. And so nine were really, um, is a section we've seen what God's people have done. We looked a lot at that last week. Um, and we're starting to move now into 10 as we look at what does it look like right now for them and, and his hope 
for uh, the Jewish people and really for all of us in this, because as we read today, I think you'll see how much we have in common with the really human condition that we see here. And so Romans 9 starts real simply. It says, uh, Paul is, is hurt over the fact, says is in anguish over the fact that his people, he's a Jewish man, his people have missed it. They haven't put faith in Christ. What happened with that? What's going on? And so he asked this great question, which is essentially did God's plan fail then with them? But is it not as though the word of God has failed? He says, but the whole Old Testament that we read as the Old Testament in our Bibles is the story of God's people, of, of this Jewish people. And it seems like they'd be the ones who would like continue to, to usher in this Messiah and point everyone to this Messiah, to this Jesus, and they haven't. He's talking to a church in, the, in Rome that's uh, more Gentile, not Jewish people. In fact, the church that even at times historically has pushed Jewish people out, even culturally just around them, not even in the church. They just said, oh, Jewish people are not good. Uh, they're causing problems. And so there's this general sense of like, where are they? Why aren't they here? And maybe they're not supposed to be here. Um, and so last week we got to unpack this and look at this idea where he talks about there's like Israel and there's Israel. And so there's Israel, the ethnic, the people group. And then there's Gentiles who are not, or just the word for not Jewish people. And then he talks about this other Israel, this spiritual promise, true, this, this Israel we hear in scripture of uh, this like Israel is just the word for like the, the church in a sense, the people who do believe that have put faith in Christ. And so he's looking at why are some of his friends and his family, these Jewish people that are his people not, not doing this. And so that's where we're at. He's really unpacked that. He's looked at the history of what God has been doing, that he's always been working in these people and that ultimately God is sovereign over these things, meaning he has control over these things and that God, uh, we hear in Romans 9, the section we just go, go through right before today's passage, that God actually is the one who does these things. He's the one who brings people to know him. He brings people uh, into the light, into the family of God. So we looked at that last week. And last week, one of the things we talked about was that that passage really leans into that God is sovereign, that he's always known and always will know, and that he's the one who, who elects these people, he brings these people in, and that there's a tension there because scripture also tells us that yes, God is sovereign and he's the one who chooses his people and scripture says, turn to Jesus. And so today, the next passage after that passage is a passage that's gonna call us to that. It's gonna remind us that the problem here is that people put faith in things other than Jesus. And so now there's that great tension right in the same passage, right next to each other. It's a tension we don't really get resolved, but a tension that's very real. Hopefully one day we'll understand better. We will. Um, but this is real tension. So this is our passage today. It's a short one, uh, just 30 through 33. I'm going to read the whole thing and then we're going to take some time to walk through it. And I hope this is one that maybe helps us understand what does it look like to live in that up and down, the am I good enough? Am I not good enough? And do I have to just like hate myself? Do I have to not like myself? Is that okay? Is it, I have to think more highly? There's something that I think pulls us out of that. It's another way to live. So let's read, this is Romans 9. I'll read this for us. What shall we say then? This is right after Paul has said, uh, explain that, that God is sovereign, that we, we can trust him, that he knows what he's doing and we don't need to ask those questions. He actually calls us clay that's been turned into pots. Uh, and he says, this is the clay question, the potter. So, so what shall we say then? That Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have obtained it. That is righteousness meaning just being right with God. So Gentiles have not pursued being right with God, but they've attained it. That is a righteousness that is by faith. 
They've attained that through faith. But that Israel, who pursued pursued a law that would lead to righteousness, did not succeed in reaching that law. Uh, And so I'll read the whole thing. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as if it were based on works. They've stumbled over this stumbling stone. As is written, behold, I am laying in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. And whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. All right, we're going to look at this first part. This first part is is, uh, stating this thing that he sees happening and maybe just even reiterating it for the people there. He's saying, what what about these Gentiles, these people who are not Jewish people, who are not pursuing righteousness? They weren't necessarily even looking to know God or know Jesus or looking for a Messiah or looking, they might even have been living lives where they were worshiping other gods or living uh, in different kind of spiritual contexts. And then he says, and then there's Israel who was pursuing this law that would lead them to righteousness and it didn't succeed. So there's people who are actually like trying really hard to figure out how to follow the rules and the law right so that they could obtain righteousness and be right with God. And then there's people who weren't, who were just like stumbled upon it apparently. And they said yes to faith in Jesus. How does that work? Because these people seem like they're the ones who've been thinking about it and pursuing it and trying to figure out how do you get to God? How do you have a relationship with God? How do you have favor with God? How do you become right with God? And how did they not get there when the people seem to just stumble into it? It makes me think a little bit, the feeling that I remember having um, when I was playing baseball as a kid. And uh, I remember we made it to like an all-star game. Uh, I made it to an all-star game because I'm a big deal in eighth grade. Uh, and I made it there. And a kid who was on the team with me, I remember asking him like, isn't this cool, man? You're so good. He was like, so good in our league. And he said, yeah, I don't even like baseball. And I thought, what? And then it's like that feeling of that kid becomes like the MVP player of the year and they interview him. And he goes like, they're like, how did you do it? You're so good. You must've working your whole life. And he's like, ah, just this year thought, maybe I'll try baseball. And I guess I'm good at it. It's that, that feeling of like, I've worked my whole life for this. We've, I've been trying my hardest at this and figure it out. And then I, the kid who doesn't try, who just tries out this year and then is amazing at it shows up, right? It doesn't seem fair. It seems like, why would he be the kid? In fact, this passage is saying, you're actually not even playing on the team. You're watching now and going, how did I not even make the team? This is all we do is figure out how to be better baseball players. And we're not on the team. And then this kid shows up. He doesn't even like baseball. He just thought it'd be fun to try. Obviously, right, this is talking about much deeper, bigger deal here. R.C. Sproul uh, shares a little bit of what this passage means. It says, the Jews pursued righteousness, but they pursued it in exactly the opposite way from that in which it can be found. They were pursuing to be right with God. They wanted what God had to offer them, but they were doing it the opposite way that it was created to be. They pursued it in their own strength, by their own works, by their own merit, and consequently fell into a spirit of self-righteousness. This is the word we're going to look at today, the self-righteousness. The Jewish people were trying to follow the law, thinking they'd figured it out and they could be the people. And in fact, a lot of, even in the Old Testament, we see statements being made about how they think about Gentile people. Those dogs, those animals, oh, if they could only be like us and do the things that we could do and follow God's laws and rules and seeing all that God had given them, all those ways there was pointing to Jesus as 
ways to get to God rather than pointing to the way, the person who actually got them to God. Paul goes on here to kind of explain. He actually gives this great uh, picture of what this looks like. And it's a picture we see actually throughout scripture we'll look at. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as if, they're, but as if it were based on works. So he sets up this thing. We see this over and over in the book of Romans, over and over throughout scripture, that over we want to do enough, work enough, that then God will say, yes, okay, I'll let you in. Instead of saying, I'm going to put my faith, I'm going to believe that Christ has done the work put in, right? It, this is not a new thing. It's a thing we talk about a lot because it's at the core of the gospel. And so he says here, the problem is that the, not that they didn't do enough or follow all the rules enough. The problem is they thought that is how they got in relationship with God. Why? Because they pursued works over faith. And he makes this reference. Then they have stumbled over the stumbling stone, as is written, which might seem strange. That's a weird reference. Okay, what does that have to do with faith? And works, and then he quotes, and this is actually a bunch of quotes from uh, Old Testament. We're actually going to see this is quoted also in the New Testament. This is a phrase that actually would have been common. It's a phrase used to explain uh, when there's something that you trip on, right? That you like hurt yourself on. This stumbling stone. I like the picture a lot. It's actually one. This is a great example of us to read our cross references in our Bible. If you have a Bible, a written one, these are ones they print them on paper. It's like kind of cool. There's ink they use. <laughs> If you have it, you might've had a Bible uh, or have one that in the middle has all these little tiny words. And you wondered like, what were those words? Those often actually are cross references. So if you're reading a passage, it might have a little like, um, you know, a lot of you probably know this, but just to remind us, it has a little number or a letter and that number would remind us of where this passage came from. It might go, oh, this phrase is also used in this part of scripture. This is a really great way to just have a slow, nice, slow, Bible study. Take a passage. A lot of passages have this, especially reading the gospels and go, I'm just going to take today instead of trying to figure all this out to try to read a whole lot. I'm just going to maybe read a couple of the cross references. And it often opens up the passage. It gives you this richer, broader meaning. It often pushes us way to the, the beginning of scripture and way to the end of scripture. And you realize how it's all one picture. It's really great. And this passage is one that has a great example of this. And so this passage this is just online. I just screenshot this. This is from our passage here today. It has a bunch of references. So this stumbling stone, you think, oh, that's kind of random. Why did he say stumbling stone? Why is he saying, behold, I'm laying in Zion, a stumbling stone, a rock of offense? He's actually quoting multiple places in the Old Testament. Stories or phrases that the Jewish people would have known. Stories or phrases that might have been even a prediction of what was going to happen. And so we can see this here, right? We should see it pushed forward to First Peter we're going to look at. Uh, to Isaiah, to another passage in Isaiah, to Joel. This is actually a, a, a kind of a mix, a mixtape of these passages all together. It isn't just this passage. This is actually passages put together, phrases or scripture that people would have known that he put together and said, this is, this is something we've known is going to happen. There's this stone, people stumble over it. It's actually offensive to some. But then the people who believe are not put to shame. So let's just look at those. We're going to take a second and do our little study here together. I think it'll help open this passage up and see what he's really saying here. This is the passage from Isaiah, two of them. But the Lord of hosts, him who, him you shall honor as holy. Let him be your fear. Let him be your dread. He will become a sanctuary and a stone of offense and a rock of stumbling to both the houses of Israel, a trap 
and a snare to the inhabitants of Jerusalem. This is Isaiah. Isaiah, uh, God's speaking um, through Isaiah and he's saying, hey, uh, you're going to actually trip over this stone. It's going to be offensive to you. Um, Odd. The, the inhabitants of Jerusalem makes me think of that moment when Jesus cries over Jerusalem. He's crying over them, stumbling over him. And then in Isaiah 28, we hear, Therefore, thus says the Lord God, Behold, I'm the one who has laid a foundation in Zion. Remember that from the passage? A stone, a tested stone, a precious cornerstone of a sure foundation. Whoever believes will not be in haste. Here's, you're probably getting an idea here. What is he describing? What is this stone that they're, they're stumbling over? What does this look like? Behold, I am the one who has laid a foundation. This is a stone that's been tested. It's a precious cornerstone. The stone that is laid that all the other stones uh, are held together by essentially a sure foundation. So there's a stone that God is going to lay that's going to be tested and precious and the, and the cornerstone, the thing that's going to hold it all together. And whoever believes in that will not be in haste. But in our passage, it says, will not be put to shame. And that actually comes from this passage in Joel. You shall eat in plenty and be satisfied and praise the name of the Lord your God who has dwelt wonderf- wondrously with you. And my people shall never again be put to shame. You shall know that I am in the midst of Israel, that I am the Lord your God and there is none else and my people shall never again be put to shame. It's a good repeat there. This picture, right? So we're seeing God has this idea of the stone that's coming. That's the foundation. That's the cornerstone. And that cornerstone is going to allow people's, God's people to no longer be put to shame. That shame even being a thing connected. We've talk, we talked this often, right? All the way back to Genesis where there was no shame. And then Adam and Eve decide to sin and turn from God. And all of a sudden there is shame. And he's saying, there's someone who will come and correct that. And now my people will not be put to shame. So where else do we see this passage? We also see this passage referenced in Acts. This is a book right before Romans. And this is where um, Peter and John are arrested. They walk, they walk up to a guy who's at the temple and he can't walk. And he asks them, uh, can you give me some money? And they say, well, we can't give you money, but we can give you something better. And they pray in the name of Jesus and this man can walk. And he's thrilled and he's telling people about it. And they get arrested. They get pulled in by the, by the officials there. And they say, you, what's going on? They're saying that you're healing people in the name of Jesus. And this is blasphemy and, and you're in big trouble. This is where they get threatened with their lives. They say, you can't talk about Jesus anymore. Otherwise, uh, we might have to end your lives. And this is what they say to them. Let it be known to all of you, to all the people of Israel, that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. I love, this is a very bold response to could you stop talking about Jesus? And they say, Oh, the Jesus that you crucified, that God raised, that is the one who's healed this man. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. There it is. Who's this cornerstone? What is this stone that we're stumbling over? What's this stone that's, the, that's, gonna, not, that's gonna eliminate shame from us? That's gonna bring glory to God? That's gonna bring his people together? Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And you wonder in that moment, as he says that, do they go, whoa, you're saying that the, the one talked about in, in Isaiah, the one talked about in Joel is Jesus, and there is salvation in no one else, for there's no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. 
it's almost he's quoting Joel essentially here saying, there's no other God we can be rescued by, the one who will take the shame from us, the cornerstone, Jesus. What a picture even of them stumbling over Jesus, arresting men who have been healing people in the name of Jesus. Instead of embracing him as their cornerstone, they have not. And then we hear this passage used in 1 Peter. And this, I think, explains uh, even more. This gives us this picture of Jesus and what he essentially does with us as well in this picture. As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious. You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in scripture, behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. There it is. The same phrase. This must have been a phrase even being used within the church, reminding them that this thing we've been waiting for, this cornerstone, the one chosen by God, the one come to rescue us, those who believe in him will not be put to shame. It says he's come and he's made us living stones with him. So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling, a stone of offense. They stumbled because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. So in this passage, we're hearing that Jesus then has come and he not only just comes, but he through faith in him adds us. We get to become this essential like house that he's building where he's the cornerstone that holds it all together and we get to become these, this spiritual home, this priesthood, the sacrifice that is, is accepted by God and does bring favor from God, but not because of how well we built the house or how well we were priests or how well we sacrificed, but because it's through Jesus, our cornerstone, who establishes this house. Those are interesting phrases he uses too here. I think not accidental. Those are essential things in the Jewish faith. Those are essential to the law. You're building a house, a temple. So he's saying Jesus has come and he's built the like best temple, the better temple, the right true temple. He has created the true priesthood. This priesthood that you relied on, we got to have the right priest doing the right things so that we can all be made right with God. We have to have the right temple and do everything in the right way so that God will be pleased with us. And then we have to make the sacrifices just right so that we're acceptable to God. And he's saying, Jesus has done that. He's created the right temple and he's created the priests and he's created the sacrifice. He's done all that. He is all of that. And so your faith is in him and what he's done and not in you doing all those things. And so we then will not be put to shame or Jesus becomes a stumbling block for us. We say, I, no, I can do those things. And he becomes, instead of a cornerstone to this holy house and this holy family, he becomes something we stumble over, trip over, or even walk away from. The heat, if, if we don't say yes to him doing the work and we try to do the work ourselves. And so he essentially builds this house, right? We have this beautiful house uh, that Jesus is the cornerstone of, satisfying our desires, giving us what we've been looking for, this righteousness that we've been pursuing, that we want, this favor with God, rightness with God, this peace with God, a future and a refuge, security and a family, control, 
someone who knows what's going on and, and actually is just and right and knows how to handle it. And an identity, who am I? All that given to us, all those things we pursue, we think we can do enough to, to get all those things. And Christ says, I'm gonna give all those things to you. God glorified in the process. Uh, it isn't about us, it's about him. Or we can work and work and work to try to gather these things for ourselves. And we just continue to stumble over Jesus. We see Jesus there offered to us over and over and we say, no, 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 I got, I got this. I'll let you know when, when I need your help. I wanna be the one in charge. I wanna be the one who's powerful, strong. I wanna be the winner. I want my name honored and glorified. And it actually causes us to stumble. This is the, the, the phrase that we use often in the church. We'll say this is works versus faith or the law versus the gospel or self-righteousness versus Jesus's righteousness. This is, I mean, this is like the core of every single day of my life. I struggle with this to say, Jesus, I want to be built into your house. I trust you're the one who's done the work. But it's really hard because I want to be the one in charge. Tim Keller says, why do people stumble over Jesus? Because faith in him requires that we lay down any idea of self-righteousness and we accept his righteousness. It's this idea that I actually am not the one who does this. I'm actually maybe not as big a deal as I think I am. At the same time, it's not about hating myself because Jesus also doesn't do that. It's kind of a changes in attitude you have. I showed a video um, a, few, a few months ago, but I think it really captures it. Now, this, this isn't a statement about necessarily the gospel changing a person, but I think it gives a little hint. And there's a reason why we're attracted to this video. This is just a um, quick video of Jim Carrey at the Golden Globes. Taking how he responds here, From the how he talks. Film, True Crimes, please welcome two-time Golden Globe winner, Jim Carrey. Thank you. I am two-time Golden Globe winner, Jim Carrey. You know, when I go to sleep at night, I'm not just a guy going to sleep. I'm two-time Golden Globe winner, Jim Carrey going to get some well-needed shut-eye. And when I dream, I don't just dream any old dream. No, sir. I dream about being three-time Golden Globe winning <laughs> actor, Jim Carrey. Because then I would be enough. It would finally be true. <laughs> and I could stop this, this terrible search. <laughs> For what I know ultimately won't fulfill me. But these are important, these awards. I don't want you to think that just because if you blew up our solar system alone, you wouldn't be able to find us or any of human history with the naked eye. But from our perspective, this is huge. <laughs> One more time, here are the nominees for best motion picture comedy. The Big Short. Well, it's, uh... 
It's such a beautiful picture. Uh, if you notice even the way people react, how we reacted, how the room felt here. And if you notice even how the room there felt, there's like giggling, there's laughter. There's a sense of like relief, I think, a little bit of like, okay, he doesn't think he's a big deal. Uh, it's a sense of like, it's, a, it's okay. We all think we're maybe bigger deal. It's, it's like we're aware, right, that that doesn't really fulfill like it maybe we think it will or give us value like we think. Or when he says, uh, then I'll be enough, that's a value statement, right? Then, then I finally will have like reached a place where I am completely satisfied that I've essentially reached this point of being right with God. That's the ultimate, right? As image bearers of God, being right with him and connected with him and everything's like in the right place and the right orbits all connected the right way. And there's something about the way he was saying it that kind of gives a relief like, oh, there is something true about that. Um, and so we could kind of even laugh. I'm sure some of that laughter is like nervous laughter in a room of like the most famous people who have done lots of wonderful things. Now that is a, I think there's something there, right? We feel something there. Like, what is that though? So he doesn't say what that is. The Golden Globes, he didn't like uh, then open scripture and say, well, you know who is enough and who makes you enough. We see this though over and over and over in Jesus that the system isn't, that's been created by God isn't one of like, you gotta do enough and get enough and then I promise I'll heal you. Then I'll take the shame away. Then I'll make you right. Then I'll make you this holy house. Then I'll make you this priesthood. Then I'll make the sacrifice acceptable. Then you'll be in a place that you were supposed to be. The story of the gospels are over and over again, Jesus going to people who couldn't at times do anything for him. Sometimes even we're doing things against him. Stories of a man who's up in a tree who's been stealing from his community and Jesus walks through the town past tons of other people and points to the, the big sinner in town and says, I want to be with you. I want to go to your house. He doesn't even ask Jesus to hang out with him. Jesus just says, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be with you. I'm going to hang out with you. Jesus walking up to a demon-possessed man, a man who's actually overwhelmed, consumed by that which is the opposite of Jesus, right? That's consumed by evil, who's destroying himself. He's been pushed out of his, his town. He's essentially living as a dead man in tombs. And he comes to him and he says, I want to heal you. I want to bring life to you. I want to take away the evil, the demon from you. And he casts the demon out of this, giving this man life. That man didn't do stuff. Jesus didn't go, hey, you're really good, demon-possessed man. I'm thinking I need one of you on my team. He's not putting together like a heist team where he's like, now we just need a demon-possessed guy and we'll be, we'll be there. It's not an Ocean's Eleven, right? It's not like a Jesus Eleven scenario where he's got to find all the right. There's a man lowered through a ceiling. He can't even walk to Jesus. Even if he could have walked, the crowds were so tight, he probably couldn't have gotten into the house and his friends lower him in there. And you remember that story? Jesus says, your faith has healed you. Not only healed his legs where he can walk, heals his body, but heals him spiritually. So he now heals him and forgives him of his sins. He didn't do anything. The woman who just touches his cloak, who he says, your faith has healed you. That's when people around him even say like, hey, we got to get her out of here. She's, she's stalling you from going to help this girl who is sick. 
And he stops and says, no, 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 we want, this is important. She goes, all I did was touch your cloak and I'm healed. Faith, again, story after story in the gospels of Jesus coming. This is why people are really upset with this because he was saying, hey, the system you have where you do a bunch of stuff, where you have all these works that are gonna essentially make you right with God, isn't how it works. I'm gonna come and show you how it works. I come and move into your life and you say yes and you believe and you're healed. The story of this woman touching his cloak, he's actually on his way to another story where he's going to a young girl who's actually dead and he raises her to life. That's the best picture of us. That's the picture we see in Ephesians. We are people who are dead, which means you offer very little and he comes and raises us to new life and welcomes him in his family. And he builds a house, the holy house. He builds this holy family out of us, a bunch of people who are not enough. He makes us enough. And Paul is weeping over, why can't my family, why can't my Jewish friends stop working and working and working to get this when Jesus offers it to them? There's so many things we're doing. He offers them. Well, this is what, here we go. We got there. St. Moses says this. This has uh, been what I've been thinking about this week. He says, you fast. There's a thing you do, but Satan does not eat. So she says, well, so Satan actually is better at fasting than you. You labor fervently, but Satan never sleeps. So, hey, you can really work hard. Satan also doesn't work. But the only dimension with which you can outperform Satan is by acquiring humility. For Satan has no humility. He's talking here essentially about this same thing, about faith. He's saying the only thing we can do is to stop and say that we can't do and recognize that it's not our hard work or a better fasting or our, our more labored for the Lord, but it's essentially us stopping. And this is the opposite of what Satan does. Satan keeps working, keeps going, trying, 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 and cannot. Uh, Tim Keller, in his book, the, F- the Freedom of Self-Forgetfulness, which is actually a very small little book. It's very helpful. It talks all about this what we're talking about today. The essence of gospel humility is not thinking more of myself or thinking less of myself. It is thinking of myself less. So just in partnership here with, with St. Moses, this idea that humility is, uh, is what we're looking for, not humility like, oh, that guy doesn't think much of himself uh, or that guy's really cool. He thinks about other people a lot more. It's essentially saying when I understand the gospel, I realize how big and glorious Jesus is and how good that is. And it causes me to want to think about him more and know him more and be with him more and less about me. It's so much about me. And that's something Satan can't touch because Christ comes in. And so I just want us to take a moment here as we, as we end our time here to think about what this looks like in our own lives. What is self-righteousness? How do we trip over this in our own lives? Because uh, Paul is here writing a letter to the church. These are people who are uh, following Jesus and he knows, hey, these are, these are things that we all deal with every day. And then what does it look like to be living in Jesus' righteousness? I, so I just started making a list. My list got very long. I'll share a couple that have been uh, hitting me this week. Just ways that I, it sneaks in there and I start thinking that I uh, am better or my value comes from or my worth comes from or I'm enough because of this thing. These are categories we, we use here before. These are sometimes the words we might use when we think of like idolatry, thinking of us worshiping something other than Jesus. And these are things that I think we pursue and they're actually good things. 
things that we are built to pursue, approval and love from people, maybe from ourselves, comfort, security, being safe, and even power. Those things are all things that we pursue. And just like Paul here is saying the Jewish people pursued righteousness of God, these are things that are actually given to us that are so much better and true and concentrated in Jesus' righteousness and things we keep grasping after and often fall short of and actually think that we find and then we don't find. Here's ways that I've found that. I was thinking this week about this. Um, I was at my dad's house helping him after some hip surgery and we were looking through these boxes of like family pictures and notes. And I found um, my grandma had kept thank you notes that people had sent her. So I don't know if this might be something, a tradition in your family. This was in mine. So when we were given a gift, we had to write a thank you note. Anyone else have this tradition? Um, to the point, like there's times where I know in, in Kelly's family, this was a tradition as well. There's times where like you aren't supposed to like enjoy your gift until you've written a thank you note. I remember uh, my mom being like, tell them you're thankful. And I was like, okay, I guess I'm thankful. And uh, my aunt has this... Uh, thing where she feels like she needs to say thank you for things as well. And so uh, we, there's this uh, kind of long, never-ending thank you card uh, series where someone was given a gift. They wrote a thank you note to my aunt. She wrote a thank you note for the thank you note. But then because they were obligated, they had to write a thank you note for getting a thank you note, which you can see this could be never-ending. This could be like from the 1800s, right? And it's still going today. There's like 600 thank you notes because then they're like, oh, you should thank them for writing you a thank you note because you wrote them a thank you note because they wrote you a thank you note. <laughs> I was thinking how funny that is and then how sneaky that is. I, I, think that's out of, I, I think it's out of a heart of like, I want to be thankful. There's a point where when I'm given a gift, I now think, okay, I got to owe them something. I got to give them something because I got to do something for that. I can't just let that slide. It's really hard to live in like a grace-based economy, right? Have you had this? So I think of this as like someone offers us a meal or brings something over to our house. And I think like, okay, well, we'll get you next time. As if like that's, that one I don't think was their point. Think of that. Think how sneaky that gets in self-righteousness. There's a, a level of like, if I just accept your gift, uh, somehow I like owe you or I'm less than. I want to make sure I do something back so you know that I'm good. In there, even some of your motives, you get real down to your heart. What's going on there? Some approval maybe I'm searching after. I think of this in parenting. This often comes up for me in parenting. I want um, to be a good parent, to love my kids well. And often I, I'm trying to find my own value or my own identity in my parenting. I actually had a moment of a, uh, of like a double whammy in a parenting moment. I was explaining um, uh, to my dad one day about, about parenting. And I was like, I just don't know what to do. I want to figure out how to do this better. And uh, hoping that my dad would go like, hey, it's okay. You're loving, you're doing your best. That's really all I wanted was some dad approval. <laughs> and uh, he took it the other way. <laughs> he juked me a little bit. And he's like, yeah, you're not good at that. And so in the moment, I was feeling the like, the weight of like, I'm not good at parenting. I'm not valuable. I, I don't know what I'm doing. I was feeling the like, my identity is being taken away because I can't do the right things to get, whether that's security or approval or whatever that is I'm searching after, hoping that my dad, I could, I could use my dad to maybe work out. And then he doubles down on me and give, doesn't give me approval. And I'm very uncomfortable. 
thanks. To, I was like, Dad, I just need you to say it's going to be okay. <laughs> he was like, well, it might not be. You're not, you're not good at that. <laughs> thanks, Dad. I can't wait someday to, to get to double down on that. He's helping me with my self-righteousness. Think about this, how this happens maybe at work. How much value comes from or your identity comes from, maybe even just your title. How, how important it is for you. Have you had moments where you just go like, I deserve that title. Why do they get that title? Even just a, a title, like right, the name. Or how much comes from a wage that you earn? Something wrong with trying to get a better wage. Nothing wrong with celebrating that you're getting paid more. But maybe you're also feeling the weight uh, or maybe even some self-righteousness about that as you go like, oh, I get paid more. I deserve more than them. The competitiveness and all that. So much self-righteousness ekes into that competitive spirit that we have. How much of our value might just come from, I worked really hard and no one recognized it. I mean, there's, there's something, right? It's, it's okay to go, hey, I worked really hard. But to go like, oh, but there's anger that comes up. All those, you start feeling those things. Why? Why am I feeling these things in this moment? Think about relationships. Maybe you, you should be speaking up more or speaking less in relationship, but that could be a sign of, of where there's self-righteousness in there that you're seeing in your own heart, a moment of like, I'm going to talk about this a lot or talk about myself a lot in this or something I've done or I haven't done, something I do really well or I'm going to sneak into this thing, an opportunity so they know how, what a nice person I am. All those things, those little moments where we aren't holding on to our value and who Christ has made us, a value that's given to us freely, this freedom that we're given for not having to figure out how to navigate all that system to find our value, to find who we are, but Christ has given that to us. And so I can speak freely to someone. It's even hard sometimes to cheer someone on. Have you, do you, have a, have you had a moment where a friend shares some really good news and you're frustrated that you don't get to share that good news and in the moment you don't even know, you're like, hey, that's great. You're like, oh, I hate that I couldn't celebrate with you. Or, or maybe you're so frustrated, you're like, why? Why does this happen to you? I don't get this. The moment of like, I'm not gaining my value, so I can't even celebrate with a friend. You might even feel like people steal from you or betray you or take from you, and it really destroys you. It's really hard. What does it look like to be one who rests in Christ, the one who has been betrayed, who loves you dearly, who gives you all that you need? And so those things don't hit you so hard. I think even the amount that we maybe set up a boundary or push people away because they don't fit in, our, in the comfort that I'm seeking, because I'm looking for them, I'm trying to work them and use them to get my comfort rather than from Jesus. I think just quickly things for myself, I think I try so hard to fix my own anxiety, discomfort, with so many different things and cope with so many things and not go to the one, the source of love and care and comfort. I uh, asked some middle schoolers this question this week. I said, hey, uh, I, didn't, I didn't say the word self-righteousness because I don't know if they'd know that word. <laughs> but I said, hey, how do uh, people treat each other in middle school? You know, like to try to make themselves look better. Because I thought, oh, middle school is like the epitome of this. So here's the response. They said, uh, Sometimes I do and say things just so people will like me. And they said, you know, like, you know, middle schoolers do that. And I said, oh yeah, adults don't do that. <laughs> they said, sometimes I make fun of other people or we gather with people and then we all make fun of one other person. 
because it makes us feel better, like we're better than them. And I said, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Adults, adults don't do that either. <laughs> Sometimes I fake how good I am at something or I make up stories so people think I'm better than I am. Okay, yeah, yeah. Uh, I feel insecure often inside and I do whatever I can to hide that. Sometimes I just feel like I'll never be enough, so I do whatever I can, hoping that I'll be enough. Because we're all middle schoolers, right? <laughs> you read that list? We're all middle schoolers. Pick one of those. A life of comparison, uh, competitiveness, maybe self-hate or apathy, and the gospel says no to all of that. The gospel gives us this great, great Jesus. And that's why Paul is heartbroken over this. That's why Paul says, I so want my people to know this Jesus, that, that the life of working towards this, trying to figure out the right way, the right system, is not going to do it. Jesus himself has become our cornerstone and wants to build us into his house and make us his family. I'm going to invite our worship team up here so we can worship that Jesus. I want to encourage you just to consider that today as we have a gospel response. What does that look like? To, to maybe root out some of that. See what, where is that coming from? Where is my, the, maybe some big emotions you're feeling might be coming from uh, a place of self-righteousness where you go, man, it's because I think I can do this uh, or I can't do this. So some questions to consider today. Is Jesus your cornerstone, your righteousness? First, that's the first place to start. Is he the one we put our faith in, our foundation? Where are you feeling self-righteous? When do you feel like you trip over Jesus? When is Jesus, uh, way or his life or, or trusting in him, uh, tough. You're going to trip, trip over him. Do you let others help you pursue Jesus? That'd be a good sign maybe of, are you letting others in to this? It's okay. You have others that you can say, I, I'm broken and I need your help. And then who needs to know there's freedom from religion? a life of work. We also have the opportunity to take communion, which is out in the hallways. We'd love for you to do that. That's an opportunity to remember Jesus' death and resurrection, uh, the work that he did so that we would not have death uh, in our futures, but that we would have resurrection in our futures. And so uh, you can take communion. We ask that you're just a follower of Jesus, so that's meaningful to you. You don't have to be a member here at Hope. Uh, also, we are going to sing together uh, so that we can remind ourselves of the gospel. There's people that want to pray for you in the back of the room. They're standing back there right now. They'd love to do that. You can also give in response to the gospel. Let me pray for us as we uh, enter into a time of worship here. Lord, you're really good. Uh, wow. Uh, no, matter, no matter where we're at, what we're doing, no matter how good our day is or how bad our day is, you are there with open arms welcoming us into your family, continuing to give us great love, comforting us in our hearts, securing us as you are our refuge and your Holy Spirit empowering us to do those things that we cannot do on our own. I pray now that you would continue uh, to work in us. And if we are not, if we feel we're stumbling right now over you, that you would help hold us and draw us near. Lord, I pray today that we would continue to turn to you, that maybe there's someone that isn't feeling like that, and that right now you change hearts as we sing and worship that we would turn to you. I love you, Lord. You're really good. Amen.